Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of violence, murder, and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In January 2006, the crew from America's Most Wanted arrived in Boulder, Colorado. Producer Fred Peabody spent two days following every move of 59-year-old historian Sylvia Pedham. Given the show's history of covering heinous crimes, one might think Sylvia was a witness or perhaps even a suspect in a murder investigation. But this case was unique. The crew was getting footage of Sylvia doing some forensic work of her own going through archived newspaper articles, attending weekly meetings with the sheriff's office, and skimming for evidence deep in the Colorado wilderness. Sylvia Petham might not have been a member of the police department, but she was currently spearheading the investigation into the 1954 murder of an unnamed woman, or as she was referred to by law enforcement, Jane Doe. And the cameras just so happened to catch one of her most triumphant moments. As the team piled up into the small Boulder Sheriff's office, Pedham presented a compelling case to Detective Steve Ainsworth. She believed she had tracked down the man who killed Jane Doe over 50 years ago. After skimming the materials, the seasoned detective nodded his head quietly and agreed with Sylvia. It was a landmark achievement for an amateur sleuth, but one that was beyond earned. Sylvia Pedham dedicated over a decade of her life to the Jane Doe investigation, and despite countless setbacks and hurdles, managed to always find a way to move the seemingly impossible case forward. And uncovering the identity of the man who killed Jane was just the beginning. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Jane Doe, an unidentified woman that was found murdered in Boulder, Colorado. This week, we'll cover the final years in the journey to uncover the truth behind Jane Doe's identity and murder. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. 
By 2005, 58-year-old historian and writer Sylvia Pedham had dedicated almost a decade to uncovering the truth behind Boulder's Jane Doe, an unnamed young woman who was found dead and decayed in the bed of a creek. And in those nine years, Sylvia managed to do more than even she herself had anticipated. She had leafed through scores of old media coverage of the initial murder and strung together her own case file on Jane. She linked up with local law enforcement and various nonprofit groups to help fund the exhumation of Jane's body for further forensic analysis. An online community grew by the day and all worked to try and piece together Jane's story. Although things were most certainly on the uptick, Jane's origins were still just as murky as when the investigation began. However, after receiving a tip from a fellow researcher, Sylvia Pedham had reason to believe she was closing in on the man who murdered Jane. You know, I was going through murders that happened the same year Jane was found, 54, and I came across this man, Harvey Glattman. Seemed to have been in the area right around the time Jane turned up dead, and his track record is pretty terrifying stuff. You ever looked into him before? Sylvia had not, but she rushed to Boulder's newspaper archives to see what she could find, and the results stopped her dead in her tracks. She found a reserve of articles about Glattman, but one from 1958 featured an interview with Sheriff Art Everson, the lead investigator on Jane Doe's original case. Do you consider Mr. Glattman to be involved at all with the strange 1954 murder of the victim currently known as Jane Doe? Absolutely. He's a prime suspect at this time. Glattman's record shows that he's had a prior arrest in Boulder for the abduction of another woman. And he's had several arrests for terrorizing local women just 30 miles away in Denver. Have you taken any measures to question Glattman? We're trying. He's currently detained in Orange County, and we've sent case files to California. We're still waiting on their response. Unfortunately, that's where the information on Glattman came to a standstill. However, if she could reach the Orange County Police Department, perhaps she could get closer to the man who killed Jane Doe. After getting in touch with an Orange County sergeant, Sylvia was disappointed to find that neither the police department nor the district attorney's cold case team could locate anything on Glattman. So she returned her focus to Boulder. Sheriff Art Everson's family was still in the area, so Sylvia reached out to his daughter to see if she recalled her father discussing Glattman with her. Unfortunately, the police of the 1950s were a tight-lipped bunch and rarely brought their work home with them. Sylvia found herself at yet another dead end. But she made the wise choice of announcing her discovery of Glattman on the Jane Doe message boards. The online community pounced on the new lead, and within days, Sylvia's inbox was flooded with information. One such email was from a hardware store manager in Billings, Montana, who started his message with, quote, You won't believe this. And what he unveiled didn't disappoint. He explained that after seeing Sylvia's post, he did some of his own detective work and was surprised to find Glattman's name attached to a scholarship fund at the University of Denver, the Harvey M. Glattman Memorial Scholarship. And sure enough, Sylvia found an entire page dedicated to the serial killer on the private university's website. 
The scholarship had been created at the request of Glattman's wealthy mother, Ophelia, after she had made a sizable donation. The scholarship provided support to students in the accounting and business schools. While this did little to advance a connection between Glattman and Jane Doe, it did stoke the flames. Sylvia was more intrigued by the bizarre life and crimes of Harvey Glattman than ever before. The researcher who had tipped Sylvia off about Glattman, Cindy Eichhorn, then found a detailed account of the killer's previous crimes in a compilation of true crime tales called Kiss Me, Kill Me by Anne Rule. The woman who put his nearly decades-long spree to an end was Lorraine Vigil. Where are you headed? Oh, I'm just walking into town to pick up some groceries. A girl as beautiful as you all alone? Come on, I'll give you a ride. Heading in that direction myself. Oh, that'd actually be amazing. Say, are you a model? I'm a photographer, you know. We should talk business. As soon as they got back on the road, Glattman pulled off Interstate 5, pulled out his handgun, set it on the seat next to Lorraine, and tied up her wrists. Lorraine put up a fight and managed to get her hands free and onto Harvey's gun. It went off, and in the confusion, she tumbled out of the car and began crawling away as fast as she could. Glattman was quick to jump on top of her. He subdued her once more and dragged her back into the car. However, things didn't go as he had planned. Right as Glattman began to gain the upper hand, a police cruiser drove by. Sir, what seems to be the issue? Wait, are you... Sir, get down on the ground with your hands behind your back, now! Officer, this is just a misunderstanding. See, we're just having a disagreement. Please, please help me! This man is trying to kill me! Down on the ground, now! The officer took him into custody immediately and undoubtedly saved Lorraine's life. Once Glattman was interrogated, the officers discovered that Lorraine would have been his fourth victim during his time in California. Harvey Glattman had created a complex system in which he would pretend to be a photographer for an adult magazine. He would approach women through modeling agencies and dating services and convince them to do risque photo shoots with him. He would have his victims pose in elaborate bondage. And once they were subdued, he'd sexually assault them and then strangle them with lengths of rope. And while there was extensive reporting on Glattman's crimes, the majority of these crimes were committed in California. Sylvia knew that if they were ever going to connect Glattman to Jane Doe's murder, they needed to plunge further into his history. After weeks of speaking to countless officers who served in various police departments in California, Sylvia finally managed to get in touch with Sergeant John Eumenhofer. His father was also a police officer and was very close friends with the man who was the lead investigator at the LAPD during the time of Harvey Glattman's arrest. Sylvia and Eumenhofer spoke on the phone regularly for months, and Eumenhofer couldn't help but get drawn into Sylvia's crusade, as so many others had. He found the story compelling, and a refreshing return to old-school police work that was slowly becoming obsolete. After weeks of trying, he was finally able to locate the original case files on Harvey Glattman, complete with transcripts from his confession in 1958. 
but he warned her that there was little to no information about his criminal activity in Colorado. It might not have been perfect, but it was certainly more than she could have ever anticipated. In a matter of days, a pile of manila folders marked Glatman ended up on Sylvia's doorstep. As she skimmed through mountains of police reports and crime scene photographs, it became clear to Sylvia that Glatman was more of a monster than she could have ever anticipated. She leafed through picture after picture of his victims, hogtied and strangled. There was even a black-and-white picture of Harvey Glatman himself, gangly and tall, with terrifyingly vacant eyes. Finally, Sylvia got to read his 1958 confession— And towards the end of the lengthy statement, she was thrilled to find some discussion of his time in Denver. Glatman and his interrogator discussed a woman who he had attempted to murder after she had posed for some photographs. He did not kill her, but he did say that it's possible that he hit her with his car after letting her go on the side of the highway. Sylvia's mind immediately went back to Jane Doe's original murder scene, as well as the finer details of her autopsy. Not only were there fractures to Jane's kneecaps that were consistent with being struck by a vehicle, but the spot where her body was found was right next to a major highway. It was a long shot, but the pieces were finally starting to fit together. Coming up, Sylvia and her team get closer to Jane Doe's true identity than ever before. Once upon a time, I thought I met Mr. Wright. The only problem? He was a huge liar. You were going out of your mind because you couldn't figure it out. I'm Abby Ellen. Join me as I tell the story of one con man who entangled his lovers, friends, co-workers, family, and me in an identity fraud scheme that stretched all the way to the Pentagon. Season 2 of Imposters, The Commander, a Spotify original from Parcast, premieres Monday, September 13th. Follow and listen exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now back to the story. While detectives at the Boulder Police Department were reviewing Harvey Glattman's files, Sylvia Petham decided to continue digging. She knew that there was plenty more beyond what she already had. Before his 1958 arrest in Orange County, Glattman had a whole life in Colorado that she knew next to nothing about. So she headed to the Boulder Police Department in search of answers. Sure enough, dating back to 1945, they had an arrest on file. The then 17-year-old Harvey Glattman was arrested for assaulting 24-year-old Noreen Lauer. After finding the date of the attack and the name of Glattman's victim, Sylvia was able to dig deep into the local archives to unearth even more information. Miss Lauer, could you explain to me once more what happened? Well, I was leaving work, and I walked by this big storage facility that had an alley next to it. Right as I passed, a man popped out from the shadows and grabbed me. 
He said, this is a stick-up. Is that when he attacked you? Yes, sir. He tied me up and gagged me. Then he threw me into the alley and just left me there. For how long? He didn't come back until midnight. Must have been over an hour. Then he took the rope off my ankles and started walking me out with a gun pointed at my back. We walked almost three miles, all the way up into the mountain range. He kept me there all night. Did he? Yes. Like, it was nothing. He was completely calm the whole time. Then he just walked me back down, cut me free, and hailed a cab. Just like that. Like, it was nothing at all. Noreen immediately went to the police, and Glattman was arrested in Denver two days later. After being held at the Boulder County Courthouse for six days, Glattman's parents paid the $5,000 bond, and he was free to go. However, within a week's time, he was in court once again for assault. This time around, the judge signed a court order committing Glattman to a psychiatric hospital. He spoke to his doctors about his crimes with ease. So, Harvey, did you want to hurt these women? No, not necessarily. It's just an urge, and sometimes I can't control it. And how does it make you feel to know that you're being punished for these urges? Well, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, I hurt some people, and now I'm being kept from hurting other people. It's not very complicated. Do you find that you still have these urges? Not right now, but it's hard to say how it'll be later. Then, after being convicted for a string of aggravated robberies, Glattman was sentenced to five to ten years in the Colorado State Penitentiary. Despite his troubling track record, he was granted early parole just seven months later on July 27, 1946. Three months after his release, once again, Glattman stood before the court. This time he pled guilty to robbery in the second degree. It seemed as though Harvey Glattman could not help himself from committing these horrendous crimes, always against unsuspecting women and almost always violent. The way the justice system seemed to let him slip through the cracks each time was even more disturbing. And sure enough, Glattman was out on parole by April 1951. It was around this time that he began to parade around Denver as a so-called magazine photographer. Glattman managed to stay out of prison throughout the majority of the decade until his arrest and subsequent execution in 1958. However, it was the opinion of the many forensic specialists and true crime experts who have studied Glattman that his crimes only worsened. He just got better at hiding it. By this point, Sylvia was a bona fide Harvey Glattman specialist. Between his proximity to Boulder at the time of Jane's death and his penchant for attractive girls that were exactly Jane's age, it was likely that she had found her man. But still, Jane was yet to be identified, and that was why Sylvia was doing all of this in the first place. As focused as Sylvia was on Harvey Glattman, there was another name that echoed in her head. Catherine Dyer. 
she was listed as a missing person right around the time that Jane Doe's body was found. Sheriff Everson stated in an interview with a local paper that he discounted her from the investigation due to a height discrepancy of four inches. But Sylvia found this odd. Much of the information in her missing persons report was relayed to the police by her landlady, including her approximate height. How accurate could that be? Not to mention, just about every other aspect of her physical description perfectly lined up with Jane's. So Sylvia set out on the warpath yet again to track down any remaining links to a missing person whose legacy had been lost to history. The initial media coverage of Catherine's disappearance stated that she had recently separated from her husband, James, or as he was more commonly known, Jimmy. With her investigative abilities at an all-time high, Sylvia began using every resource at her disposal to track down any known link to Jimmy Dyer. Unfortunately, there were about 50 different Jimmy Dyers who lived in the Boulder area at the time of Catherine's disappearance. But Sylvia was no stranger to these sorts of setbacks. She knew she needed to find a new angle. Sylvia dove deep into Social Security records, and soon she thought she had her man. Perhaps if she could find someone who knew the couple, or at least knew Jimmy, Sylvia could learn more about Catherine. But before she could even reach out to anyone else, she found herself staring down yet another piece of crucial information. Through the various records unearthed by finding Jimmy Dyer's personal records, she was able to uncover Catherine's maiden name, Farrand. This allowed Sylvia to reach out to any living family that she may have left. If Catherine was indeed Jane Doe, this story would have the ending that Sylvia had dreamed about since she first got started a full decade earlier. Coming up, Sylvia travels down a winding road to uncover more about Catherine Ferrand. And now, back to our story. After months of endless internet searches and digging through archives, Sylvia and her online support system were able to get closer to Catherine Ferrand, even if it was through quite a few degrees of separation. Divorce records led Sylvia to a woman named Joan, Jimmy Dyer's wife, after Catherine. She hopped in her car and drove an hour and a half outside Boulder to meet with her. While the meeting was fairly uneventful, it did present Sylvia with a new lead. During their conversation, Jimmy's second wife mentioned that he was a member of the Colorado Mountain Club. Sylvia knew that prestigious clubs like this one kept airtight records of their past members. Perhaps there was some more information to be found on Jimmy Dyer and hopefully Catherine through the Mountain Club. The club's archivist, a man named Woody, met Sylvia at his office and led her into a freezing cold basement that was lined with file cabinets. Sylvia found Woody to be an intense man. He was willing to grant Sylvia unlimited access to the archives under one condition. She had to give her undivided attention to some footage he took of a supposed UFO in Moab, Utah. She agreed. Her willingness to indulge in Woody's request paid off. Within minutes of going through the member logs, she found Catherine and Jimmy's signature and information. Just seeing Catherine's handwriting in the flesh sent a chill down Sylvia's spine. It was only a hunch, but she couldn't shake the feeling that she was getting closer to the truth. 
And it must have been contagious because pretty soon, Woody's enthusiasm began to rival Sylvia's. And it turns out, UFOs were only the tip of the iceberg when it came to his interests. A few days after Sylvia visited the archives, she received a phone call from Woody. He had taken it upon himself to hire a psychic to try and communicate with Catherine's spirit. He had planned on going himself, but his car had broken down and he needed a ride. Sylvia and her husband were heading into Denver that day anyway, so they figured, why not? When the three arrived at the psychic's office, Woody revealed the Mountain Club's register that contained both Jimmy and Catherine's signatures. The psychic placed a hand over the book and closed her eyes. This woman, this Catherine, she was very in love. Jimmy was good to her, but Catherine loved him far more than he loved her. She was angry. And now, wait, now, now she's screaming. I hear her screaming. No, no, no. She was killed. Poor thing. Sylvia and her husband dropped Woody back at home and chuckled at the strange encounter. Of course, he must have given her a bit too much background information before their session, but still, it was a nice bit of levity during a particularly arduous period of the investigation. Come March 2007, both Sylvia and the online community's focus was entirely on Catherine Ferrand. A webpage was set up devoted to sourcing information about her and compiling a database of as many Ferrand family trees as were available. Meanwhile, Sylvia tracked down just about every person she could find who had even exchanged words with Jimmy Dyer in hopes that one of them might have some information about what had happened to his first wife, Catherine. However, Sylvia's biggest break came from one of the first people in Jimmy's circle that she had spoken with, his second wife, Joan. Sylvia recalled that Joan had mentioned Jimmy's knack for photography. On a whim, she sent Joan an email in August 2007, asking if she had any of his old photographs lying around. Sure enough, she had boxes full of them. A few days later, Sylvia was back at her home, combing through hundreds and hundreds of photographs, all from over 50 years ago. And after scores of mountain ranges, beaches, flowers, family members, and vacations, Sylvia found a picture of a beautiful woman. She stood perfectly framed with the Grand Canyon behind her. In the corner of the image was written, Catherine. Sylvia practically leapt to her feet and scanned the photograph. She spared no time in emailing the photo around to everyone in the Jane Doe community. It was a huge breakthrough. One of the first responses she got back was from local Boulder police commander, Phil West. He suggested that they send the photograph to Michigan State University doctor Todd Fenton. In the hands of the talented doctor, they could be compared with the images taken of Jane Doe's skull from her exhumation in an attempt to decipher whether or not they could be the same person. This process is known as superimposition. Dr. Fenton would need the actual skull in his possession in order to view it from the proper angle. When officers retrieved Jane Doe's skull from their evidence room, it shattered into several pieces. 
To prevent any permanent damage, the Boulder Police Department enlisted an artist to make a plaster cast of the skull instead of sending the original to Dr. Fenton. Finally, in December 2007, the replica skull was ready to be shipped. It made its way out to Michigan, and they received the results on April 4, 2008. With a superimposition such as this, there were really only two possible options. If several or more specific features on the sample skull were deemed to not be a fit for the photograph, it would be ruled out as a match. But if five or more reference features made the cut, it was deemed a failure to exclude. And sure enough, the superimposition of Jane Doe's skull and the photograph of Catherine Farron turned up with five matches. As far as Dr. Fenton was concerned, there was a high probability of a match. Dr. Fenton elaborated that the cast of Jane's skull displayed similar facial proportions and overall shape to the photograph. He also noted a striking similarity between the teeth and mouth. This was all prefaced by a firm reminder from the doctor that this could not be considered a foolproof positive identification. That could only be completed through DNA testing. However, in Sylvia's heart of hearts, she felt as though this was the end of her journey. There really was a part of her that believed Catherine Farrand and Jane Doe were one in the same, and she wasn't alone. The whole Jane Doe community shared a sigh of collective relief. Commander West held a press conference to relay the new developments to the public. On September 9, 2008, the Boulder County Sheriff's Office reburied Jane Doe, now Catherine Farrand, in the Columbia Cemetery. Her body was placed in a new casket covered in a vibrant blue cloth. Sylvia stood before the small congregation and spoke. She reminded all those in attendance of how far they had all come. They had strived to restore dignity to an innocent woman whose life and identity were stripped from her without warning. While her biological family undoubtedly suffered for many years, she had gained a new one through this process. When Sylvia became too emotional to continue speaking, Commander West picked up where she left off and read a poem entitled, Elegy to an Unfortunate Lady by Alexander Pope. By foreign hands your dying eyes were closed. By foreign hands your comely limbs composed. By foreign hands your humble grave adorned. By strangers honored and by strangers mourned. Then the casket was slowly lowered into the ground. And just like that, Sylvia felt as though this 12-year-long chapter of her life had come to a close. However, two years later, Sylvia received a message in her voicemail that changed everything. Catherine Farrand turned up very much alive, living in Australia. Hello, Miss Petham. This is going to sound very strange, but I'm calling from Australia. I've been taking care of a senior citizen for a few years now, and her name is Catherine Farrand. A friend of mine sent me an email with a link to your book, all those news articles, and I know how hard you've been working on this Jane Doe case. It's been beautiful to read about everything you've done, but Catherine is very much alive. I'm sure this is a lot for you to take in, but feel free to call back if you have any questions. It was a devastating blow. Years of work was completely scrapped by one phone call. 
Catherine Farrand was alive, and Jane Doe's identity remained a mystery. But Sylvia's disappointment quickly morphed into the very same determination that kept her on the warpath for more than 10 years. She reassembled her team and got back to work, searching through archives and chasing down leads. But two years later, a twist of fate completely changed everything. In 2009, Sylvia received an email from a woman named Michelle Fowler that left her speechless. The subject line simply read, My great aunt is Jane Doe. Sylvia was doubtful at first. There had been so many stops and starts throughout this journey that it was hard to believe that things would ever truly come to a head. But still, she spent all night talking to Fowler on the phone, who had been on a crusade of her own to track down her great-aunt, Dorothy Gay Howard, and just happened to stumble upon the Jane Doe webpage. Soon, Sylvia was put in touch with the rest of her family. They were naturally stunned by this revelation. She had abandoned her home in Phoenix, Arizona when she was 15 without much explanation. Luckily, Dorothy's sister, Marlene Ashman, was still alive and was able to submit a DNA sample for testing. And just like that, the journey was over. The test came back positive. The truth had revealed itself as abruptly as Sylvia's mission had begun. It was undoubtedly a shocking turn of events. However, the family had spent the past 55 years hoping to hear from their beloved Dorothy, and now finally they knew the disturbing truth. Their grief was unimaginable, but the sense of closure brought a sense of bittersweet acceptance. Finally, she was with her family once again. With all of this in mind, I think it's tremendously probable that Harvey Glattman murdered Dorothy Gay Howard. Between his prolific criminal record and the fact that Dorothy perfectly fits into the criteria of his victims, it all adds up. I completely agree. Not to mention that in his 1958 confession, Glattman hinted that he may have murdered a victim in Colorado by hitting her with his car. If you remember, the injuries found on Dorothy's legs during her autopsy were consistent with that of someone hit by a moving vehicle. After 55 years, Dorothy Gay Howard finally reclaimed her name. And while we may never know the full truth, there is comfort in knowing that for every Harvey Glattman and Jane Doe, there are people like Sylvia Pedham people who will stop at nothing to bring justice to those whose lives were so unfairly taken from them. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Someone's Daughter in Search of Justice for Jane Doe by Sylvia Pedham to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Spencer Fox, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Joe Hernandez, Kai Jordan, and Jen Wong. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy, 